0: I would have you join me again in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 through verse 18. As you find your place, let me say it's not lost on me that these verses, especially verses 11 through 22, form a primary cog in the wheel of biblical theology and how we understand much that the scripture presents to us concerning Christ and his work. More precisely, these verses must be dealt with in your overarching understanding of the scripture. What is the relationship of the Jew and the Gentile? That said, I don't want to get too involved in anything other than what is said here in these verses this morning. I have probably, without exaggeration, read more, studied more for this particular set of verses than I have in a long time. Reason being, Christ here is presented as having abolished certain things. When you read these verses, you'll notice that enmity comes up twice. There is enmity between mankind in the form of Jew and Gentile, and there is enmity between mankind as a whole and God himself. We're told here that Christ does away with both, and we're told so in great language. So my hope in these verses is not to lose sight of Jesus Christ and to get too involved in other things. He is the central figure here. His work is central. The work he accomplished on the cross is at the heart of these verses. Paul is not here trying to convince of some particular scheme of theology. Paul is here presenting the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done to restore Gentile and Jew to harmony, what he has done, more importantly, to restore mankind to harmony with God. So let's read these verses, and perhaps this will come as apparent to you as it is to me that this is all about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Last week we ended, verse 13, with the reminder that in Christ Jesus you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Two more times in these next verses are we reminded about Christ on the cross. Read them with me in verse 14. For he himself thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So let me, before I pray, let me point you to what I think dominates these verses. Verse 13, the blood of Christ. And you get down into verse 14, his flesh. And that is there talking about his rent flesh on the cross. His broken and battered body depicted in his cross work. And then if you get down to verse 16, the language is very plain and clear that he has done this through the cross. So this passage answers the questions. What has Christ done on the cross to abolish the enmity between Jew and Gentile and then more importantly between them both and God in heaven. So Lord willing, the Spirit of God will come alongside of us and be our helper and teacher and we will answer those questions to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses. Lord, I pray you would give us an understanding of them. That you would help us to glory in the blood of Christ, his broken body, his cross work. We're thankful that he has removed the enmity between us and you. No longer are we objects of wrath because he stood in our place and absorbed your wrath to the full. He drank the cup of your wrath down to the very dregs. We're thankful that we have such a great Savior. It makes us want to sing the old hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior, that he has done this for us, that he willingly stood in our place, propitiated your wrath, appeased you so that we, as condemned like Barabbas, might go free. We thank you, God, for making this known to us. And I pray by your Spirit that you would make it known to everyone present, that we would see the beauty of the shed blood of Jesus the beauty of his body broken on the cross, and the beauty of the cross itself that provides all that we need to be made right in your sight. Father, help us. I don't want to stand here alone. Would you come and help, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So let's first look at what Christ Jesus has done to reconcile Jew and Gentile. I said last week that we really can't even begin to understand or fathom the great distance that separated these two groups. I can't remember if I shared this last week or not. If I did, I'll say it again as a reminder. A Jewish woman could not even assist a Gentile woman in childbirth because of the fact that another Gentile dog was being born into the world. That's the disparity. But it goes both ways. It wasn't just that the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. Certainly that's true. But as the Gentile cast his eye upon the Jew, what he saw there was a very arrogant person, a very arrogant nation, a very highly self-righteous exalted nation they were so far separate so far distant from one another the only word that really defines it is alienation they could not be brought together there was nothing that they could do in and of themselves to bring themselves together so this is far different than the old hatfield and mccoy situation right this is total alienation, separation from one another because one of these groups were the particular chosen people of God. We sang it this morning, we read it before in Nehemiah chapter 9 that God chose Abraham and from him made a great nation And then as we follow that story along in our Old Testament, we realize that God continued to bless this people by giving them his law. We're told of what Christ does with this law, or at least a part of it here in verse 15. So in every way the Jew thought himself to be better, more righteous, particularly chosen of God... The Gentile saw them being all of these things, but in a great negative sense, and they stood completely opposite. If you were to turn to the back of your Bible and find the map section, most of your Bibles are going to have a depiction of the temple. And what you would find there is in the middle or in the center of the temple, you have what was referred to as the Holy of Holies where the very presence of God dwelt. And into that presence, the high priest only would go one time of year, and he would not dare appear there without blood. And then as you branch out from that, you find these, these courts, and they get larger and larger, but yet as they get larger, they get more distant from the holy place. And so you have this inner court where the priests carried out their functions, where the incense was burned, and all of those types of things. And then as you remove yourself from that a little further, you find where the Jewish men themselves could come. And remove yourselves a little further, you find what was called the court of women, where Jewish women could come. Remove yourselves a little further from that, and you find the court of the Gentiles. And very clearly, history tells us that all around this court of the Gentiles, there were signs very clearly depicting to the Gentiles, if you transgress the boundary of this court, trying to make your way in more close to the holy place, you will ensure your own death. Your life will be taken quickly. Do not transgress this place. It's interesting that this outer court of the Gentiles is the place where Jesus cleansed the temple courts. This outer court of the Gentiles was to be representative of the light of the world shining upon the Gentiles, but yet the Jews had so perverted this outer court that they saw it as a place to make money. They brought their money-changing tables there. They brought their animals that were blemished that they would sell for sacrifices there. Christ overturned their tables because this outer court of the Gentiles, which was really for their inclusion, now had been so perverted that it didn't bear any semblance. And of course Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer. And it's interesting, all of that language is centering around this outer court of the Gentiles, which was perfect symbolism of the alienation. Gentile, you cross this line, we'll kill you. Was a reality. And no doubt it happened. Often. And so that's what Paul is writing about this extreme alienation between God's creation, the Jew and the Gentile. And so what does he tell us here in these first few verses of this paragraph that Christ has done to reconcile the Jew and Gentile? Notice verse 14, that he begins to say it this way, for he himself is our peace. It's interesting that Paul here does exactly what christ would do in his teaching when jesus would say of himself referring to himself not something about him not something about his teaching not something about even his gospel but something about who he was as a man being both fully god and fully man he would say that i am the bread of life i am the light of the world i am the door of the sheep I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, truth, and life. I am the true vine. And so here Paul is pointing to Christ himself, not something about Christ, not something that he has done necessarily, but he is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ himself. And he says, of him, he himself. The language here is emphatic. It's he even he himself is our peace do you remember back in the prophet isaiah chapter 9 we're told about this one to be born of the virgin what his name would be the prince of peace one of those designations as we read these verses certainly that designation of christ rises to the surface because everything about Him in these few verses, in these paragraphs, ends in peace. He affects peace Himself in His body through the shedding of His blood. As He gave His flesh, as He hung on the cross, He Himself is our peace who has made both one. No doubt Paul is here referring to, you have to go back up into verses 11, 12, and 13, but Paul is saying he has made both the Jew and the Gentile, now he has made them as one. It's the same language that we'll come to later in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes that the man and the woman have become one flesh. And we're told there what God has joined together, let not men separate, right? So the same could be brought over into this passage. The Gentile and the Jew have been made one by Christ. The question is, how did he accomplish this? Was it a pronouncement? Was it through teaching? Was it through his traveling and his course as he ministered? Over the space of three years, is that how he broke down this middle wall of separation? Not at all. Let's deal with that phrase before we get to verse 15. He himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Paul acknowledges what every Jew and what every Gentile knew. There is a great wall that stands between us. What this wall represents is we are told in the latter part of verse 15, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Remember, these things were given by God himself. These very things are the distinguishing features that made Jews Jews. They were to be separate. They were to be sanctified. They were to be holy. In short, they were to be far different than all of the nations surrounding them. And isn't it interesting, as we read this morning, that when they entered into the Promised Land, the reminder there in Nehemiah chapter 5 is as they went, the Lord drove out all of these Gentile nations before them. And He gave this people, the Jews, His, his chosen nation, all of their homes, all of their vineyards, anything that they had built, any well that they had dug, anything that they had done to improve their land, the Lord gave it all to his chosen nation. And so the antagonism, obviously, for centuries had been great between these two groups, and it's based primarily on this middle wall of separation which that outer wall or the court of the Gentiles was symbolic. So there was a reminder physically, visibly that you could see. And then there was the reality, the fact that God had indeed given a law to his people that they were to obey, but they did not. We're going to get there later. The verse tells us that Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his death the enmity. What does this word abolish mean? It means to remove, to loose, to do away with, to render inoperative. It's the same word that's used several places in the scripture, perhaps another place most notably in Romans chapter 6. In verse 6, a little different context, but the word is still the same. Paul writes there, Know this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, or abolished, or rendered inoperative, or removed, or loosed, or made void. All of those words help in understanding what Christ has done to this middle wall of separation, His law contained in commandments and ordinances. He has abolished it. How? How? Where we're told here, in His flesh. As He hung up on the cross, as He was crucified in our place, what a great reconciliation He has worked for the Jew and the Gentile. But you know, there's another illustration of this, and I'll just mention this in passing. There is another illustration of His reconciliation within that close band of disciples that He would have called to Himself do you remember the designation for Simon, the disciple? He was called a zealot. Do you remember the designation for Levi or Matthew? He was a tax collector. Zealots hated tax collectors. They despised them. An interesting note that is brought out of a zealot. They were often called dagger men. They would hide little daggers inside their cloak. What did they use those for? To kill tax collectors. But yet here Jesus calls to himself one of each. Brings them to himself. And all of that alienation, all of that hatred, all of that melts before him. And they become two of his most close disciples. That's a small picture of what's happening on a much larger scale than between the Jew who had the law, who had the ordinances, who were blessed in every way, Paul says, much in every way, and the Gentile who had none of that, who seemed to be completely excluded, and only throughout the Old Testament were there glimpses of the inclusion of the Gentiles. People like Rahab the harlot, Naaman the Syrian. There were just small pictures of the grace that would fully come to the Gentiles later as the light of the world began to shine upon them. But notice the particular way that Paul says this. That Christ has abolished in his flesh the enmity. Let's deal with that word. This word, a basic way to understand this word is just the lack of harmony there is no peace any way you turn you'll run into something that expresses the enmity the the enemy nature so this is what christ has abolished through his flesh more particularly that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances So let me ask you a question. I hinted at this earlier in our first hour. Paul tells us here that on the cross, in his flesh, Christ abolished the law. Fair enough. Go back with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus himself. In the 17th verse of Matthew 5, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so which is it? It's both. How can we say that it's both? I think Paul helps us when he adds, though not in parenthesis, but Basically, in parenthesis, he says, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For centuries, there has been a distinguishing... There has been a way to distinguish the law of God that not all people will embrace. Not all people like these distinguishing characteristics of the law. But I think verses like this necessitate... The distinguishing character of the law of God. You've heard these before. There is what is referred to as the moral law. The moral law which was summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law which is written on every man's conscience according to Paul in Romans 1. It was given a formal Outworking in what we call the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, it was the summary of the rule of love of God and neighbor that Christ used, and it climaxes in the giving of the new commandment. Then there was what was called the ceremonial law. And it's that aspect of the law that I believe Paul has in mind here all of that ceremony concerning sacrifices, sanctification, separation, distinguishing, which, by the way, it was all of those things that the Jews had perverted. And it was all of those things, not the moral aspect of the law, but it was the ceremonial aspect of the law that they had perverted and were using to exalt themselves as being righteous in God's sight, when in reality they were nothing more than self-righteous Jesus would pronounce woe upon them, call them hypocrites to their face. He said, you're like a bunch of dead men's bones inside whitewashed tombs. And so back in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says that he did not come to destroy or abolish the law, certainly if you read Matthew 5 in its context, he's talking there about the moral law, the commandments, the Ten Commandments and all that would flow out of those Ten Commandments. But what he is said to have done here by Paul is to abolish all of that ceremony and sacrificial system, which were all types and shadows pointing to what he would do when he came fully as a man to bear a cross and to die upon it. the end of his abolishing the law was that the enmity between Jew and Gentile was torn down. And if you look at the end of verse 15, we find by the end of his cross work, he had created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Before we move on, I want to give you one application of this that I think is helpful because we're still here in the realm of Jew and Gentile being reconciled, and if we carry that out a little further, it's men being reconciled to one another. These are the words of William Hendrickson, and I ask you to listen carefully. If you don't hear anything else, please hear this. He says the basic lesson holds for all time the reason why there is so much strife in this world between individuals between families whether it be social or political groups whether the strife is small or large is that the contending parties whomever they may be through the fault of either or both have not found each other at calvary why is there strife and contention? Why was there strife and contention between Jew and Gentile? You could boil it all down if you want. They had not found each other at Calvary. In Christ, the great leveler of all mankind. And really, doesn't this hold true in situations that you are aware of in your own life? Perhaps you are at enmity with someone, close, a close family member. Perhaps you are at enmity with someone who you once considered to be a close and dear friend. Perhaps there is alienation between you and a social group or a political party or another entire family, whatever it may be. What is the answer to that? To ensure, first and foremost, that you have met Christ at Calvary and then to pray that this other party would find him there and you as well. Though I didn't write down the entire quotation of William Hendrickson, he goes on to say something like this. William Hendrickson, he says, alienation, enmity can only be brought to peace. Whatever realm or sphere it's in can only be brought to peace through Christ and his work at Calvary. Perhaps you've, been privileged to stand outside of one of those restored relationships and have seen that this is exactly the case. So long as there was one party outside of Christ, the enmity was not to be overcome. The one party who was in Christ would pray and, and seek and ask, even beg forgiveness, but it would never come until that other person, if the Lord ever brings them to faith, then what happens? There is real reconciliation, real harmony, real restoration. These illustrations, taken to a far greater extent, are what has happened through Christ's death on the cross, through the rending of His flesh, of the enmity that once existed between the Gentile and the Jew. What a great reconciliation Christ has worked. Paul would go so far as to say he's taken these two very distinct groups whose hearts and minds were once filled with hatred, and he's brought them together into one man. Later he's going to say into one body. But moving from that, that being Christ's reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, we move to an even greater work of reconciliation. What Christ has done to reconcile mankind as a whole, now Gentile and Jew together, to a holy God, His Father. We pick up there in verse 16. And that He might reconcile them both. Interesting here, isn't it? Jews needed to be reconciled to God as well. Not just the Gentiles. Jews stood in need of being reconciled to God because I remind you back in the first three verses of chapter 2, Paul, is there, Paul there has in mind the Gentile and the Jew. And in, in maybe even a greater way in the third chapter of Romans, he condemns both Gentile and Jew under the curse of, And so now here in this verse, we have both being brought to God, reconciled in one body through the cross. Think of the greatness of Christ hanging there on the cross. So much is happening at Calvary. Yes, sin is being atoned for. My sin, your sin, is being washed clean. But this great enmity that existed between mankind and God is being completely dismantled and torn down. One of the things that I found so incredible this week as I was studying this are these words from S.M. Ball. He says this, Remarkably, as Christ was executed on the cross, God was executing the enmity between Himself and His people. What a tremendous thought. Christ's enemies used the cross to destroy Christ, but God used the cross to destroy enmity between people groups, yes, but on a far greater scale between himself and all of mankind, particularly his elect, his chosen, of which Paul spoke of in the first chapter. Could we ever even begin to fathom what all is taking place at the cross of Jesus Christ? The God-man coming in the form of flesh, taking upon himself the, the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Is there any wonder why the next verse says then, therefore his Father has highly exalted him, Why? Because he has accomplished the salvation of his people and he has completely abolished and torn down all of that which stood in separation of his creation of humanity. So what S.M. Ball says is remarkably true. As he was executed on the cross, God his Father was executing enmity between himself and his people. But notice what Paul says here of these people groups, Jew and Gentile. He says he has reconciled them both to God in one body. I'm certainly not alone here in interpreting this one body as the church. How can you read chapter 4, 5, and 6 without understanding it that way? The church of Jesus Christ now is comprised not of Jews... Only, not of Gentiles only, but of both. The people of God are now both gloriously saved. The enmity is completely gone. Notice if you keep reading the rest of verse 16, thereby putting to death the enmity. All of the hostility between God and man removed by Jesus Christ. You must have a mediator between you and Christ, between you and God. You must. There must be someone who stands in the middle and pacifies the wrath of God for you. I've been reading a short biography of Jonathan Edwards this week. you recognize that his greatest sermon or his most well-known sermon centers in the hands of an angry God. You've heard of that. You may have even studied it in an English class in high school. A great piece of literature, no doubt, but used mightily of God. But I don't know if you've ever read in history where he came under great attack for that sermon by Christians, by his own church, by his friends. They leveled the accusation against Jonathan Edwards. All you're doing is scaring people into the kingdom. How would people not respond when you tell them they're being held by a spider's web over hell and all that has to happen is for that small piece of thread to break and then they will be totally absorbed in all the wrath of God. I love his reply to that. This is what Jonathan Edwards says against such great accusation or to answer it. He says the word fright is commonly used for sudden causeless fear or groundless surprise. But surely a just fear for which there is good reason is not to be spoken against under any such name. What is he saying there? His reply is I'm not trying to scare people. I'm warning people. There's a great difference than trying to groundlessly surprise someone or to use causeless fear. And I bring this up only because the word enmity that we're dealing with here in these verses speaks to speaks to this issue. The fact that there is enmity between God and man, those who are outside of Christ, should be ground, good reason, as Jonathan Edwards says, to invoke a just fear. In reality, the Bible does say if you die in your sins... then you will become forever, throughout all eternity, an object of the wrath of God. The reality of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, of you being suspended over hell by a spider's web, that's great imagery and illustration for the truth of Scripture that tells you in in lots of different places that your life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Tomorrow. That you were created out of dust, and to dust you will return. That you were like a flower of the field. All of these great illustrations are brought forth. How could that not incite fear? And someone who has any real concern for the state of his soul, for the state of her soul, how could you leave this place without being made right with the Holy God, knowing that if you were to go out of here and some tragic thing befall you, that you would be entered into an eternity of being an object of the wrath of God. The Scripture uses great language, great graphic language to describe this place. It's the place where the worm never dies. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in reading this, I believe it was Jonathan Edwards again, speaking about the wrath of God, he said something like this, the wrath of God is not a passion in God. In other words, it's not something that he reaches at his ultimate boiling point. He says far from that. It is the calm repose against sin. In other words, what he means by that, this is not something that God just flies off the handle. This is his calm, sure, and steady wrath that will be worked out against those that refuse to come to faith in his Son. I hope you're scared. I really do. I hope you have a just fear. Not a groundless surprise. Not a sudden fright. But I hope you have a real fear of falling into the consuming hands of a living God who is holy, holy, holy. And you are sinful, sinful, sinful. But now back to this good news. All of that being true. Notice here that Paul says that through the cross, through the cross, that Christ put to death the enmity. As He was being put to death, He put to death the enmity that existed between fallen mankind and His Father. And then he says this in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever go to Ephesus? No. How could Paul then say that he came and preached peace to them? This is the book of Ephesians. He is writing to those who are in Ephesus. All of what he writes has an immediate application to them. So why is it that he would say to them that Christ came and preached to them who were afar off? Afar off there being a reference to their place as Gentiles, far removed, without God, without Christ, strangers to the covenants and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The only reason that he can say this is because he considered, even as the Spirit of God inspired him to write, that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached in truth, then you should consider that Christ himself has spoken to you. Not in an audible voice. I'm not saying that you'll hear Christ audibly from heaven. But this message of the gospel is his message. Interestingly, in John 10, Jesus would say, my sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. He even references what I think is his crosswork here when he says, other sheep I have who are not of this fold. Who are, who are they? The Gentiles who are far off. He even prayed in John 17, Lord, my Father, that You would make them one, even as You and I are one. These truths that Paul is writing here are the reflection or even what we would consider the answer to those prayers. The Father has indeed, through Christ and His work on the cross, made them one. And Jesus Himself now has prepared the way for Him to call by name those other sheep. They will respond to Him. So when Paul says He came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near, what he means there is that Christ speaks through the Gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And if you hear His voice, I pray that you will come running to Him. He will receive you. He will take you as one of His own. The enmity that exists between you and your heavenly Creator in heaven will cease to be. And as an outworking, as an outlier of that, one of the great blessings of the Gospel will be that those Christians that you have enmity with, perhaps it's your parents, Perhaps your parents who have poured into you, loved you, all of these types of things, you're outside of Christ and there is some type of enmity there between you and them when you come to Christ and the enmity between you and God is removed, then also what happens? The enmity between you and God's people is gone. It's removed. Christ comes and He preaches peace to those who are far off and to those who are near And then verse 18, the summary of this. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Through Christ, we both, Gentile and Jew, have access by one spirit to the Father. We know the Bible teaches us that Christ opened the way. That when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two full access now to a holy God through Him. Let me first make that point. You will not come to the Father in any other way but through Christ. It's impossible. Second, let me deal with that word access. You know my affinity and love for the writing of Curtis Vaughn? He helped me with this word this week. Access, what does it mean? Not only that we can now have an approach to God. It's not just that Jesus opened the door and the gate so that we could go. It is that, but it's much more. Curtis Vaughn says this of this word, it also includes a sense of invitation. It also includes not only this sense of invitation but introduction it's both the door is open inviting you to come but yet this glorious truth of this word he said it so far better than I could say it it's as if Christ takes you by the hand to the foot of the throne of his father and introduces you by name this is my sheep I called him out of the world by name. He came to me. I'm bringing him to you. Full access to the Father. Is it any wonder then why Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Is it any wonder why we read in the Scriptures no man can come to God except through Him? No other person, no other group, certainly not you yourself have the ability for you to stroll up to the throne of God and introduce yourself. And I realize that may be a somewhat way of speaking in jest, but in all seriousness, through Him and Him only, do you have access by one Spirit to the Father? Will you come? The door is open. The enmity has been dealt with. There is the restoration of harmony. But you must come. You must act. You must. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that Paul writes here. Lord, teach us more concerning it. Surely we haven't even begun to see the depths of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand these great truths and to hold them with humility, to hold them with such love for what you've done, that these things would not make us proud, that they would not make us arrogant, but that they would humble us to the dust to know that Jesus Christ came. He accomplished this in my place and then by mercy and grace He came and preached these things to me by Your Spirit. So Father, I pray that the voice of Your Son would be heard again. I pray for any sheep that have not heard His voice that even now you would dig out their ears so that they would hear. They would hear him calling them by name. Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, remove the enmity between another soul and yourself for your own praise and glory. Lord, I pray in in response to this that there would be enmity removed between individuals, between family members, between family groups, whatever it may be. Wherever enmity exists, we know that the only real and true peace that can be brought to it is through Jesus Christ. So we make the appeal. And we appeal to Your mercy and grace because we know... In both of these you abound. Father, help us to hold and to preach these truths in a way that makes Jesus Christ appealing, lovely, faithful, true. He is indeed the great shepherd of the sheep. So we ask you, Lord, to do your work. We'll give you all the praise and all the glory for it. And we'll do it in Christ's name. Amen.